You're listening to Legends of Thra, a new podcast from Trial by Stone, the Dark Crystal Podcast. Welcome to Legends of Thra, a Dark Crystal Podcast. I'm your host, Jamie Prater, and I'm joined by my co-host, James Reedy. Hello, everybody. Hello, James. How are you? <laughs> I'm all right, mate. You? We never talk. I haven't spoken to you in like five <laughs> seconds. <laughs> oh, no. I know. It's been so long. Uh, we, we have a guest trying to come in the room right now. His name is Rob Harper. Hi, Rob. I don't think so this time. <laughs> um, is Rob he is sober? A, uh, I, I don't think so. I don't think so. <laughs> Should I let him in? No, no. Rob is a dear and beloved friend of ours uh, who we, we've known. We all got to know each other around 2018. I think... Yeah, like mid-2018 is when we all became friends. Myself, James, Ethan. Well, I'd known Ethan for a few years before then. Um, but Rob is on the sauce right now. He's off his trolley. So we are not <laughs> allowing him in, in this uh, episode. But one day, one day. <laughs> we come. just don't he'll know. Get, what... He'll get his chance. Just not he today. Will. He will. <laughs> uh, today, we are here to talk about the Gelflings. This is a part two of our part one. We apologize for the delay. Um, there's only yes, one person. We can it's move my life. fault. <laughs> I'm sorry, everybody. Work, work, call. Yeah, um, I just had. I've okay. had so much on work, and uh, yeah, I went on a family holiday. So yeah, I apologize. I do apologize. That's right. That's right. Um, so <laughs> again, we're going to talk about the Gelfings. You know, I've been flipping through the making of Thra, this gorgeous book right here that's sitting on my very, very large luggage that I'm taking to England. Um, but I'm not taking the book. Uh, and it's just been fascinating to see what went into creating the, the clans. I mean, the biggest difference between the original film and the series is, of course, the introduction of Gelfin clans. Mm. Not just clans, but they're very different um, culturally. Uh, some clans live in the desert, like the Dusan. Some clans live in the swamp, like um, the Drenchen. The Drenchen. Yeah. Some clans live on the sea or by the sea, like the Seafin. The original film didn't have, the, there were hints of it. Not even so much like there were hints of clans, but there were, there were hints of a larger life, of a more detailed life um, before sort of the dark meaning took over everything and the, the world of Thra kind of caved in on itself. But I'm interested to get in, into the clans and the details of all this. There's definitely a lot of um, different variation and diversity between them, isn't there? I mean, you only have to look at the the way they look and and how they act around each other is is, is vast, isn't it? The vast differences between them all. And I think that's one thing that the writers tried to uh, get across at the beginning of the series is just you know when we first come into Age of Resistance is how different they all are and how they're just not really communicating any way, and that's how mm -hmm. the Skexes have governed them for so long it's divide and conquer isn't it so um yeah i love that i love i love the fact that there were so many different clans and probably clans that we haven't seen i mean there's one of the yeah. things that's sad about there is no season two at the moment is you know we could have had even though you've got those clans established there could have been three four more clans that we didn't know about you know the wall of destiny we see the winged we spoke about this before the winged winged clan that we didn't see you know there's some on the on the uh, wall of destiny where the males have got wings so it's sort of yeah there's um lots of different variations and i think that was a quite a good route to go down because jen and kira are quite similar aren't they 
mm-hmm. in their design aspect. And um, one of the pictures you show, shared earlier was quite cool, that early um, prototype of the Gelfling that Wendy Froud did where they're kind of like almost like animal, more animal than mm-hmm. elfin, where they've kind of got like that flocked fur effect for the skin, more fairy. Um, I think it would have been cool if we'd have seen maybe, you know, if they'd have gone down that route where they've got maybe some Gelfling where they're a bit more animal than what we're used to. But wisely so. Um, I know in the making of the original film and in the book uh, and in interviews, Jim, uh, Jim Henson talks about the Gelfling and that process to create them and how they felt like they were going towards a more animal-like um, design, but then they decided to go more human-like because they are our only way into the story. Um, everything else is so wildly like the Mystics, the Skeksis, Agra. Uh, they're so different in terms of their their look. And I think he felt like we needed a more of a human look, and I think that they made the right decision. But in AOR, you have Gelflings. I mean, like even the, the Drenchen, they look more amphibious. Just their look, mm. they look more like toad-like or frog-like. There's just something different. Yeah. The, the the way that their, their um, uh, I don't know, the, the way that their eyes and the nose kind of slope, they just look more animal-like and then you have yeah the face shape isn't it the face yeah. shape is more almost like more frog-like isn't it yeah yeah like that's sort of like the pushing the eyes out a little bit you know you've got like um i think they're meant to have and they're meant to have webbed finger webbed fingers and toes is yeah. that from the jm lee books i believe so, so even then he he was kind of pushing that and it's, it's a shame really we didn't get to see i think we said this last time it's a shame we didn't get to see um the swamps of sog and that because i think it was a real shame that we didn't get to see how naya got to the castle because we kind of like she goes to save her brother doesn't she mm-hmm. and she just appears her and um and um tavra. Oh, tavra yeah just appear at the castle it's a shame we didn't get that little journey with them but i suppose you can't have everything you can't you can't yeah. document everything, that would, can that'd, be, that's a great, that'd be a great episode on its own yeah, I know, right? A little of, side of their quest. journey to the castle, you know, who they yeah. met or whatever. Um, it's like the omission of Tom Bombadil from um, yeah. the Fellowship yeah, of the Rings, Rings. In, yeah. in some ways. Uh, then also, have... I think it's interesting that Mordrasidi, uh, not Mordrasidi, is it Mordrasidi, their mum? No. Um, oh, no. What's her name? Oh, oh, I, I can't, can't remember her name now. Lysid, that's it. Lysid, yes. Because she, when, when she's in that, um, the Mordra. Uh, when all the Mordras come together, she obviously sides with Farah, doesn't she, and thinks mm-hmm. the Skeksis. It's interesting to know how much she actually knows. Did Naya go home first to tell them what's going on? Is she, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Is it? Is it? Does she get permission from her mom to go and save Gurdjian, or does she do that on her own? I, it'd have been cool to see more of Lysid because that whole family dynamic was really, um, really cool, and I liked it. Yeah, and I, I have to say, and I know I've probably mentioned this before. Maudra Lysett is one of the most incredible puppets I've ever seen in my life. She is. Are you really? I can't believe gorgeous. you like her that much. Really? I just, and I'm not saying like, just the detail, the expression on her face, the life yeah. that you just pour, like some of the other Gelflings don't have as much li- Like you just look at her. She looks alive. Some of the mm. other Gelflings don't look like that. A lot of them, yeah, of course, look amazing. Um, I think the most problematic looking Gelfling is Farah. hundred um, percent. Uh, and she I, didn't always, and she wasn't always like that either. I've, we've seen, I've seen photos, haven't we, in the prototype it, stage where she looks yeah, a bit, I'd say, prettier. I say that I, prettier, 
Yeah. And it's it's interesting that they went that route with her because she I mean she does stand out 100%. I wonder well, if it's because they went maybe a little bit more masculine because they were going for like a warrior princess type mm-hmm. thing. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not that but, like just because Farrah isn't you like pretty quote unquote doesn't mean Oh like, no, don't yeah, don't get me so wrong. So don't misunderstand us. I just think <coughs> all of the Gelfling women have a very specific look and she just looks Almost like Neander- like a Neanderthal, like to me. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like yeah, she's got a yeah. very uh, harsh high brow, highbrow, high yeah. um, inset eyes. But it almost seems like the the um, people. I think whoever was puppeteering her, I don't know. Uh, you probably do. Uh, it's, it's like Alice. Alice. It, Alice Deneen was um, Farah. Yeah. So I feel like the puppet itself, almost like the head was caving in on itself. That's what it seems. Because if you mm. look at the. Um, if you look at the design for um, Farah, she was really pretty. Or she was, I, I'm sorry to use those terms. I, I don't mean to like qualify her. No, I, I know the character mean. as being pretty. I know, I know, but I know she, was, she, she was less. It was a prettier design. In the it was concept, a prettier design. It? Yeah. And, I, yeah, don't mean, yeah, and I don't mean that in terms of like feminine pretty. It was just a better no. design. Yeah. Um, yeah. But 100%. it seems like something happened with the actual puppet where the head started caving in because it seems like her 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 forehead was like sloping down over her mouth i don't know it was just strange it's an incredible character farah has a really really great um character arc, arc. oh she's yeah. great art, isn't she absolutely uh, her death scene is one of the best in the show yes you know and she says thra calls to me and she can hear the song of thra and all this i i love that i was really like i know it sounds bad and i shouldn't say this but i i felt more for Farah's death than I did for Tavra's death. Mm. I think maybe because we, it's kind of implied that Tavra lives on in mm-hmm. the Arathim that crawls away. Mm-hmm. Um, but I really, I really loved Farah's death. I thought she, I thought it was just excellent. I think it was sort of like for her arc to be complete, that needed to happen. I think we needed someone of, of, of power in the Gelfling to die. And I thought that was, I just thought it was really well done. It was like straight out of Shakespeare. I loved yeah. every, every moment of it. Yeah, I would um, agree with you about the. But yeah, death I'm surprised. Of, no, I was, no, I was going to say that. <laughs> I, I, I would agree with you that the death of Farah affected me more than the death of Tavra. Not that I thought didn't think Tavra mm. was a great character. I was more emotionally invested in Farah. Um, you see a yeah. lot more of her. You see her taking a stand, whereas Tavra's not really a main character. You see her here and there, and then for a long time she's under the spell of the Arathim. Um, so yeah, you feel like she's already gone. Or, yes, yes, almost. Yes, you know what I mean, like because she's because she's not because she's no longer singular. It's yeah. Tavra and the Arathim. You kind mm-hmm. of feel like her ca- her character's already gone. So when when she gets injured and she's dying, I kind of I I saw that as sort of like uh, Tavra's death needs to happen rather as opposed to it had to happen. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. Like I felt like for for Celadon's arc and for Celadon to come back full circle and to come away from the darkness of the Skeksis and their influence on her, Tavra has to die mm-hmm. for her to be re- for, for Celadon to be redeemed. Mm-hmm. So I kind of saw that come in a bit. That's the only thing in the show where I thought, oh, I, I kind of predicted that. Everything else was just, I didn't predict. I, there's loads that I just didn't see coming. Loads. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's interesting too with the Gelflings. You have sort of the high Gelflings, which are the uh, the Gelflings of Harar, who live in, and they are the what's the clan? What are they called? The Vapra. 
Vapra or the Vaprin, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. They're like the high gelflings. I mean, they're the royal. The they're royal not really. Lawyer. Yeah, the royal. That's what they I consider themselves. But they're all essentially yeah. branched off the same beginning. Whereas you then you have the Grottens, which we haven't talked about, which um, are the cave dwelling. They're almost mm. like the 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 hobbits of the of the gelfling world, where they're yeah. larger eyes. Um, they don't ever come from underneath i wonder if almost i almost feel like the grottens um took the place of the firelings from power of the dark crystal where the firelings yeah, were supposed to live underground of throughout 100 yeah, and the firelings i think were also a race of gelfling that just changed yeah they were they were they were um they lived in the center of thra didn't they at the heart of thra with its burning sun within it within its mm-hmm. core mm-hmm. um yeah 100 the grottens are a reflection of that a better version of them a, a, a version like everything in our that just made more sense. Yeah, because then don't I think the firelings had like f- actual fire coming out of the top of their head. Yeah, so I think the I think the per, the design was going to be that they were going to be part like like a lot of things in uh, the evolution of Dark Crystal was that it was going to be part puppet, part CGI. So the mm. idea was that the firelings would be real puppets, and then they sort of. Um, what's the word? Enhance them with CGI, so their hair would be CGI fire, um, which would be cool to see. But I just, I like a lot of things in Power of the Dark, so I don't think it would have worked that well mm-hmm. in the contents yeah. of the, in the contents of that story. Yeah. Um, but like with the Grottens, I thought it was genius that the Grottens didn't live there originally. Like go th- ha- thousands of years ago, and it was actually the Arathim that lived there. I thought that was a great twist. I didn't see so that too. coming at all. Yeah. I was just like, oh, that wow, that's really, that makes total sense. Mm-hmm. And it just continues that um, continues that min- that story of manipulation from the point of the Skeksis. Shows how how far they went to actually get their own way and sustain control over the Gelfling. That they've actually sort of supplanted a, a version of the Gelfling into the Caves of Grot. And it makes you wonder, on some level, did that then? in the long run, actually change the Grotten's physicality? Did mm-hmm. they have those type of eyes and the glow-in-the-dark skin, or was that only come later once the Skeksis had put them there? And is that, you know, another another part of their change is actually physically because of the Skeksis, not mm-hmm. just actually, like, historically? So where did the Grottens come from? I mean, were they just a splinter from the Vaprins? And they're like, we don't agree with what's happening. We're going off to do our own thing. And then over a millennia or a trine or whatever, hundreds of trines, as things do, they they change physiologically. I mean, yeah. they evolve. I mean, if you put <coughs> animals in a cave and don't let them out, they're going to their eyesights are going to change. You can go into yeah. caves and see um, certain fish that are swim in the water that have no eyesight. They just yeah for sure yeah. Um, it's all sonar or it's it's sense and that's how they live. Um, mm-hmm. It's interesting too. Like if you think about the Gelflings, or if, if you know, I don't know if, how religious you were raised, but uh, in the Bible it talks about the thirteen tribes of Abraham or something. Um, whereas with the Gelfling, you have these seven tribes of mm-hmm. that we know of. And yeah. they've scattered all over this this uh, world, um, but there's this thing that's kind of bringing them together, and it's kind of like a, a little bit of a Moses story, where it's right, like, yeah. go, um, and the Skeksis are the Pharaoh, essentially. Things start happening. Uh, it, it's just really, I think they the wrote- Exodus. 
basically. Yeah, totally. And, and the idea that they have to overcome knowledge that they thought was true, where they believed that the Skeksis had their best interest at heart. The Skeksis were their lords, their rulers, and they wanted to serve them, and they were inspired by them when they came to see them. But in fact, what was actually happening was completely different. They were just yeah. hungry for power, for long life, and they're these terrible things. Although they don't, even in the beginning of AOR, which I think is really fascinating, the, you, I love, love, love the first couple of episodes where you see the scroll keepers' interaction with Brea and yeah. the tenderness there and the interest. And mm. it's right before the Skeksis turn against them. And not that they were, they weren't well intended even no. before then, but they weren't. Also, they weren't out to, to kill the Gelflings and destroy them. Not, they were just evil. No, they weren't. Evil. They were like, just self-obsessed. Yeah, they're just they're just sort of like they're just draining the crystal because yep. oh they found this new toy that they can do oh it keeps them young, and then it's like that little that little spark. Well, if we can't drain the crystal anymore, why don't we drain what's next? Mm -hmm. What's closest to Thra, the Gelfling? Mm -hmm. And it's like you see this create. You can see this like the cogs are in motion. And I like yeah, like you said that first episode when the scroll keeper helps Briar into the carriage. And his hand comes down and it's just a single shot of his hand. And every seeing that for the first time, it sent shivers down me because every fiber of my being say, like, don't get in the carriage, Brian, mm -hmm. don't mm -hmm. get in the carriage. And yet the scroll, scroll keeper, thanks to Neil Sterenberg, his absolutely incredible performance. He's so almost sickly sweet. Like he's enticing and repellent at the same time. You're like, mm. oh my God, I want to be his friend. And yet there's something where you're going, oh, but something's not right. And uh, yeah, those all those scenes with Bray in the carriage is just incredible. And, and while we're on the subject of Bray, one of my all-time favourite moments of the series has to be the moment in the library in episode one with the Skeksis Book of Law. And you know, she's having the argument with the librarian and she says, I demand to know the truth. And the book opens up and that entire moment is just absolutely, the music is so captivating. It just instills all this hope in you when you watch it because you're so desperate because you know what's going to happen. You know what happens to the Gelfling and where we get to by the time of the movie. It just it tugs on your heart so much because you just, you just want them to win. You want them to win, but you know, they're not going to. So it just makes it even worse. Mm -hmm. And I just, I just think that, that, that moment is so beautiful. And that, that, um, the book itself, which is, was designed and made by, uh, is it Pippa Broadhurst? I, I think, think so. Her name is. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, is absolutely, I got to see that at the exhibition. And it's absolutely stunning, mm. absolutely stunning. To think that's a real prop is just incredible. The amount of hours that must have gone into it, all those symbols, just hand painted in, hand drawn in, it's just incredible. And yeah. it's just that just showcase. You know, if you were going to showcase this this show about what you could do with puppet, modern puppetry, I'd just I'd be like, look at that, look at that one moment, because it's just it just has a combination of so many elements. Um, to bring that to life it's just beautiful it yeah. really is yeah which is a good segue into i think something we've certainly talked about before or, or mentioned but 
What's really intriguing to me about the Gelflings is a story that we haven't seen yet. And I know it's a bone of contention about a season two. If it, <laughs> really? If it will, uh, you know, if it'll ever get picked up, if it'll ever happen, if it'll ever be a movie, we don't know. But that's not really the conversation I want to have. What I find fascinating is the story in that, though, is where, you know, we, these characters that we love, like Brea, Rian, Deet. Mm. I mean, all of these characters that we just love and care about um where does their story go and we know that many of them are going to die we know the gelfling have a huge fight against them and i know that there's a the gartham war that's um canon in terms of gelfling history um, yeah but what we see in age of resistance even though there's kind of a there's a, a battle between the skexis and the gelfling at the end and it's fantastic to see and it's energetic and it's amazing and just well done but that's just the tip of the iceberg the gelfling are about to be mm. slaughtered they're about to be slaughtered by these huge things by these gartham that of course we see at the end of age of resistance um and the honestly what i find myself thinking about the most with the gelfling are is is where they lead where they go how they die um what happens to them what happens mm. to Brea? What happens to um, Kylan and uh, Nala and Rian? Like, where do they go? Do they end up dying? What's that story going to be? And But it's essentially their history, because when we see the Wall of Destiny in the original, we see Jen reading it and telling it to Kira. You can feel it. You can feel like <coughs> they are the only hope. They are their yes. only hope for for the, the last of their race or what they believe is the last of their race. And I think smartly and wisely, the writers with introducing the Grunax and there's a, you know, there's a line where I think Skektek says, I thought we'd killed them all. But of course yeah. they didn't. There were two yeah, left. Yeah. Two yeah. that they found. I'm sure that there were more. Um, mm. So my mind always goes to the plight of the Gelflings and where that's going to take them, how much suffering they're going to have to endure. And, you know, do they go into hiding? How old, if they do go into hiding, how old is Brea by the time of the events of the original film? Yeah. And it's, and it's really clever that the writers did that because the moment you watch that scene and, and Skektek says that, and that conversation plays out between um, the Chamberlain and the scientist, it plants that seed in your mind. Because it immediately you think, oh, so there's those creatures were meant to be dead. They believe that to be there, but they found two, right? And I think cleverly they're meant to reflect Jen and Kira. So this idea that you know, even when even when in the original film, Jen believes he's the only one, and Kira believes she's the only one. So if if they find each other, who else could they find? Who else is just roaming? Who else could have survived the on the destruction of the Gartham? And I think, like you said, that was really clever that it it gives hope in a position where there, there's meant to be no hope, but it still plays within that sandbox. It doesn't just, it doesn't just magically appear. Like it gives you room to move. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Even if, if, you know, you think of the Seafer and how many, you know, ships they have, there's nothing to say that a group of Gelfling couldn't get on the ship and sail away, you know? And not to return to the next conjunction. If they, you know, if they wanted to do a sequel to the original movie, and we've spoken about this before about how they wanted to carry on and how they moved past that, etc. 
but yeah, I, I I like that idea. I think that's really I think that does set the a tone for where they could go with it. I, well, I think that there's a lot about the Gelfling lore and mythology, as you talked about with the Wall of Destiny and. Mm brought it up before the winged gelfling what are they there's so much unexplored about them and i think there's a lot within the world that the gelfling don't even know about themselves they're oh yeah because they're they're ignorant of it really aren't they i mean even the mordras even though they're the highest of the you know they're you know they're like they're the wise sages of the gelfling even they are limited to the knowledge that the skexis allows them you know um the collector and the scroll keeper tell Brea that knowledge is forbidden. You, you know, you can't come into the castle and read. You know what I mean? Like you're, mm-hmm. you're nothing. You, you, you understand your place. And up until that point, all of that's been really like inviting. And yet that, that singular moment she's putting her place. Mm-hmm. Don't step out of line. Like you're nothing. We, we control the castle, not you. And I think um, one thing that I would have liked to have seen, I don't think was, they kind of, they kind of sort of touched on it. I'd like to have seen Gelfling gone bad. Like I like the fact that they, we had that with Celadon. I'd have liked to have seen factions that mm-hmm. don't believe uh, what they're being told, like actual factions of Gelfling that side with the Skeksis. I think they actually, did they do that in one of the games? You know the the role playing game that they were maybe I haven't played any of them. I think that some of it had had the, had that idea in it, but I thought that I think that would have been a really cool idea to have in it because you know if if because you don't have no, you wouldn't just believe everything. You know what I mean? Yeah. You've a thousand years you followed the Skeksis. You, if someone just went, oh, we see it with Rian, don't we? He's trying to he's trying to pass that on and tell people and wake people up, and everyone's like, nah. <laughs> you know what I mean? They see him as the villain rather than Skeksis. Mm-hmm. So I think I'd have liked to have seen that maybe um, expanded a little bit more. And I think it's wholly realistic that you mm. would have factions or maybe even people in certain clans being like, we don't believe this. This isn't yeah. true. I mean, if you look at the world that we live in today, because I think so many, so many times the best stories that you see on screen or in books is a reflection of where we are as a society or where we've come from as a society, where you have people in societies not believing, like, for instance, with climate change or whatever. Like, there are people yeah. out there who don't think that it's that bad they don't think that it's a real thing they think oh the earth has cycles which of course the earth does and so they use that to kind of flit things away like oh no whatever it's not real and i think there would be factions of gelfling or maybe even certain members of certain clans saying let's band together because uh we stand really, with the Skeksis. Yeah, we stand with the Skeksis. They want what's best for us. And really, these other Gelflings, they want to destroy us. They want power. So they flip yeah. the whole script. Again, yeah. which is things that happen today, which you can see in the news or whatever about certain things that are going on. And we, people who are really keyed into what's going on in the world, they can see things and see them for what they are. Whereas with other people, they can't and they won't. Um, for whatever yeah. reason, there's a block. And I think the Gelflings would go through the same thing. Um, yeah. And they would fight to the death, believing that the Skeksis oh, 100%. were best for them. Yeah. You know? and, I, and I think that was a, that was a theme that um, the writers at Age of Resistance, you know, did really well to continue on. You know, a lot of people, when they watched Dark Crystal or, or you know, looked at it years later, it was kind of like, 
it is meant to be a reflection of you know climate change and you know how that how our world is is effectively dying because of our greed etc 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 so it's quite nice to see that continued on and, and but but again it's 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 more subtle um than some other properties have done it i i one of the things i was really worried about going into age of resistance was that it just be used as a platform to just bash people over the head with it you know what i mean like sometimes it's too obvious like that's that's all the message is and it's not it's not it's not written cleverly in the sense of they tell a story and then weave that into it whereas every message that age of resistance wants to tell does it in a way that is good storytelling excellent character design excellent and 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 just weaves that into it so it's multi-layered multifaceted so you could you could watch this in five six different uh, different viewpoints and still get a different message that's mm-hmm. relevant um but yeah because the best stories and we again something it's, we um, talked about before the best stories um they don't bash you over the head. That's why I think Age of Resistance is so amazing is because they told a wonderful story set within the parameters of this world that Jim Henson created. And we can take away from it things that make sense to us, but they're not winking at us like, oh, this is about Donald Trump. You know what I mean? Or like, oh, this is yeah, about... Yeah, yeah, yeah. They weren't... Or, yeah. or maybe even saying things like um, that remind us of things that we're going through today. Um, oh, 100%. Yeah. And again, I think the, uh, there are some shows and movies or whatever that are like sledgehammers and you walk away and you know this, you walk away and you're like, huh, that could have been great, but they were so, they were so bent on the message that the story got lost. Yeah. It's just, it just ends up being a bad movie. Yeah. So it's like, so the message means nothing. So what happens is you have an opposite effect where you have, you come away and you think that, oh, the movie was bad because of the message. Mm-hmm. No, it's not bad because of the message. It's because the message is all they're trying to give you. Mm-hmm. Whereas Age of Resistance is not that. Age of Resistance is an excellent piece of television. Ten hours. It's, mm-hmm. it's like five movies, five excellent movies that tell the story that needs to be told, but also gives you the gives, you know, they send a message as well. Um, and I you know, whenever anybody asks me and they say, oh, why do you like Dark Crystal so much? It's because of that reason. I cannot see how people can sit there and watch Age of Resistance and not be entertained. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The level of artistry in every aspect is absolutely stunning. Yes, there's an argument that it's very different from the original movie, but you couldn't make 10 hours of the Dark Crystal. Like I love that movie so much, it's, but it's an art house movie. And in today's society and trying to keep viewership, you couldn't do 10 hours of a mystic, you know, going, oh, yeah, yeah. you know what I mean? It just doesn't work. They wouldn't have even got commissioned. Like it's, it, it, it did what Jim did and Frank did and all the people involved in the original movie 
back in 1982, they showcased to the world what you, you can do with puppetry, mm -hmm. modern puppetry. I mean, I went, you know, when I saw the cast, you know, the, when I when they initially gave off the cast names and I saw that Louise Gold was the only one from the original movie, I, my, you know, my initial was, ah, oh, what? None of the original guys. And you see what the level of that these guys, the new guys were working at is mental. That whole carriage scene with, Chamberlain and and uh Naya and Gurgin and, and trying to save Rian it is that's all real. That entire thing is real. And it's it, I just didn't think they'd they'd even do that on any level. Like you there's the aspects of it where you look at it and you think, oh that's CGI. And then I, you see a behind the scenes fight and you're like, Jesus, is <laughs> they did that real as well. I mean, one one thing that I that, that just remind me, one thing that it uh I saw what I thought was brilliant and it shows the transition is there's a, there's a bit where uh, Rian fights in the final battle and he's fighting the, he's fighting Skekvar, the general and Rian's on his hands and knees uh, on his bum, sorry. And he's scooting back along the floor mm -hmm. and the general's putting a sword between his legs and he flicks Rian. Right. And in one complete shot, you see Rian do a backflip. He disappears out of shot and then Rian jumps back up again. Now, the way they did that is you have one puppeteer has one puppet of Rian on like a rod where he does the backflip. And then as he drops down out of camera, Neil stands up with Rian on his arm, a completely different puppet. Mm -hmm. So it's not even the same puppet. And yet it looks like it is. And that, but that's how those sorts of shots fool you because for someone who doesn't necessarily know the behind the scenes, you just send, you think that was the same puppet, but it's not, it's two reins. It's just so um, quickly done that you just mm -hmm. believe him to be alive. You believe that that puppet's done a backflip and then he's jumped back up again. Yeah. And it's, it's aspects of that that I just, I could just watch all day. They could literally release every piece of raw footage from Age of Resistance. And I would sit there for hours and hours and hours and watch that. Because the art form is just so wonderful, and those guys did such a uh, incredible job. Um, yeah, they really did. Uh, I, I I think that to your point in terms of they couldn't do the first film today. I and but they shouldn't have. What they did with Age of Resistance was perfect because it's a different world. It's a the world oh, hundred percent. Yeah, it's a, yeah, it's a more wrong. alive yeah. world. It's yeah. it's whereas when we meet Thra in the original film. It's a dead world or a dying yeah. world, dying yeah. more than it it was in at the end of Age of Resistance. So it yeah. had to be that, and a lot of it is static because that they couldn't move that much. They couldn't yeah. they couldn't do too much with the technology for puppetry back at the time. Even still, what they did was amazing. I mean, again, the shot that we talk about all the time, Kira and Jen flying off the mountain. We still, even though we yeah. know how that's done definitively now we still don't <laughs> i still look at that like okay they're flying they're yeah. flying yeah yeah <laughs> yeah i mean like yeah like you they couldn't do law they wouldn't have been able to do law because you'd you'd have seen the puppeteers mm -hmm. you know a lot of the shots that they did in age of resistance you know requires them the puppeteers to be digitally removed you know there's the there's loads of shots like there's the hundreds of shots like that mm -hmm. and i suppose you call, you class them as a special effects shot it's just crazy. The amount of hours and time is just incredible. Uh, and but going back to Jen and Kira, I just wanted to, I, I would fish something out. So we were talking last week, weren't we, uh, on the last episode about um, Kira being um, puppeteered really well. Um, and 
I found, um, so I, I, I wrote to Catherine Mullen, um, who's the puppeteer of Kira. Um, and uh, she replied and, and gave a little tip tidbit about her um, performance. So I just thought I'd re- I'm going <coughs> to settle down kids. Cause I'm going to, I'm going <laughs> to read from a set, read from a letter here. So, <coughs> so uh, yeah. So Catherine writes um, talking about her performance. She put, I was looking for movement that was different. I wanted a certain grace and I found inspiration in watching Disney's first animated feature, Snow White. Snow White was rotoscoped. I thought the actress or dancer who did the movement for her was very successful in creating a real but somehow fantasy movement. To get the reality, I would take myself doing the scene and then try to get the puppet to come as close as I could to my own movement. I spent many a long hour working on it. Kira was also my first major puppet role, so I was scared enough to work very hard. And I think that comes across 100% in the the original movie. Yeah, and I know that you've spoken about Jim not having as much time on Jen because he was doing the Muppet movie movie and kind of the back and forth, but but Catherine Mullen had more time, and you can see Mm. it. And I think Catherine Mullen and... Alice Deneen have a lot in common. Alice Deneen had a lot of time with the puppet of, of Brea and both of the movements. I would say, in my opinion, Kira is the most amazing performance of a puppet I've ever seen to this day. Uh, at, at the yeah, same, she's I'd, wonderful, isn't she? I'd say next on that level would be um, Brea and then next would be Deet. I think the thing with, I think the thing is as well, is like with Kira, I think, because again, when we go back to the original movie, the movements are a lot more composed, a lot more controlled. You know, that there's you don't see any of the type of movement that you get in Age of Resistance in the original movie. Mm-hmm. So I I wondered if if Kira was brought into Age of Resistance, would there be a disconnect? You know what I mean? If they if we had a moment where we got a flashback or a flash forward of Jen and Kira as adults, re, you know fully realized for Netflix would, would you recognize them as they are? Like, could they replicate that? Because, you know, that'd be, you know, that'd be something the puppeteers would have to think about because it's like, if you started to try and do what say Alice did with Braille or what Neil did with, with, um, with Rian or what, uh, you know, Becky did with Deet with Kira would that would that come across the same way would you would it fail to be Kira because it's too new does that make sense it does I think they would have to because, really approach you know what Kira. I mean you, yeah it, they'd have to really 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 because it's really, not really. as they're not as energized is my point you know what I mean yeah, like for not. example when you speak about Brea Brea's movements are very you know her head's moving all the time the hair's going she's very spontaneous you know she's you know, she's very energetic. I just wondered if, like, if they did that with Kira in a modern setting, would would it work? Is my point. I think it would. Even to only, even to recreate Kira. Yeah. Well, I think physically, it would o- that'd be, be that'd be such a hard point. Yeah, I, I think it would work only because. Yeah, go on. Sorry, go on. Kira is uh, not certainly. They had different technology, and they were slower. But Kira is very elegant. I think if they kept her elegance, she's very like just the oh, way. Oh no, no, she don't get me wrong. I'm not, I don't. Yeah, 
Like if I think if they yeah, could, I don't mean I don't mean that, from the sense of point that it's just the way she's puppeteered, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it is. Um, so they'd have to puppeteer similarly. Um, and I don't know if there's there's a lot of speculation that in um, the second season or a final season or whatever or a final film or whatever they however they would wrap up the story that Jen and Kara might make an appearance at some point. Um, and I think. I, I, I think that they could really do it. I think they could. And I think Jen and Kira are set apart from the rest of the Gelflings because they are set apart. They live in a completely different world than Bray lives in. Yeah. Um, they live in a yeah. much quieter and slower world. So I think they might. And if Kira and Jen end up meeting Bray and the others, it, you would see a difference in these because their culture, their personal culture is yeah. different. Just like if you I, take a, a country person. <laughs> put them in the city they're going to be like yeah. oh man this is a lot for me yeah yeah but i also think i think maybe from i didn't you know i'm going to use star wars as a as an example you know like when we had the um spoilers for anybody who's watched mandalorian like the end of season two of mandalorian where we come to, we meet luke skywalker mm-hmm. up until his face is revealed it was excellent the yeah. moment you see that face it's like um oh, I'm, I'm pulled straight out of it yeah. And I was, I was just worried if they decided to ever go back to Jen, to ever build Jen and Kira puppet, how hard that would be. Oh my because God. it's literally, it has to be perfect mm-hmm. because Jen and Kira's designs are so unique yep. and so specific. You know, I, you know, I don't want to bash anybody, but like even like the new Weta sculptors, right? I, as lovely as they are for me, they're not Jen and Kira. They don't capture them. No, they don't. And the, the, and it's the likeness is so specific. You know, you one you one millimeter. The eyes one millimeter in the wrong position, and it just disappears. And same with the um, same with the crystal calls. When when um, they're talking about how one of the ideas with double negative was to take Kira's face and augment it. And they were saying, oh, you know, it just brought a bit of life. To it. It's not Kira. It looks like a freak. <laughs> <laughs> I, get, I get what they're trying to do. They're trying to add life to the puppet and make them more alive, which they can't, which they did with Deet, right? So Deet's, for anybody that doesn't know, Deet's eyes are so big that they couldn't build the blink mechanism into her eyes. So all of her eye blinking is CGI. Totally get that. That, that totally makes sense. If you want to put water droplets on their skin if you want to if you want to make their you know their cheeks puff out in and out maybe so that looks like they're breathing i get that but what they did with that and they thought that might work is what i'd consider is, is not a route to go it's down sacrilege i will never forget watching that um documentary uh, about the making of aor for the first time and you have ted biaselli from netflix describing the conversation with um d negative or D yeah. or whatever yeah um, and they're like just no just wait a second and then they show us and you i i looked at the the kira and uh, i'm like this looks uh, like an abomination I'm gonna, this she I'm gonna looks be like sick. i'm gonna be sick look, <laughs> and i'm thinking are you convincing yourself that that looks good because that uh, looks like garbage um uh, look, uh, so i'm so glad that they the augmentation they did worse for the small things the tongue yeah the eyelids like it's just yeah perfect yeah definitely and um i was talking to um, I'm, I'm, I had the pleasure of meeting Dave Chapman before uh, COVID 
and we were he was I was talking about the eye blinking, and he said he was saying how he actually prefers um, eye blinking to be put in with CGI, because what happens is is that you imagine they they'll film, um, you know, say they're filming a scene, and they'll film that scene say six, seven, eight times. And then they'll go away and cut that and cut, edit the best bits together. But what can sometimes happen is you can accidentally cut out the eye blinking, the manual eye blinking. So what happens is you have a t- uh, you can sometimes get a, a puppet that's giving you know the puppeteer is giving the performance, but because it's several takes edited together, you can sometimes get this moment where the puppet's not blinking at all. So adding CGI blinking can take that out because you can physically see oh yeah that's he's his eyes are open way too long for that dialogue and then we'll just put that in in post-production so it's interesting how you know like something like that like modern technology you can you can do that and and fine-tune a puppeteer's performance through the use of cgi instead of like you know the old way of doing it and uh, again as we're talking about gelflings they really really did it perfectly. I mean, there is a fine line, and you know this, as fans of media, as fans of fantasy, things can pull you right out or it can keep you in. I mean, Mm. for instance, you have Game of Thrones, and Game of Thrones has digital dragons in there, you know, CG dragons, because of course, Mm -hmm. because how else would they do it? And they look absolutely real. There is no moment where I don't think that those dragons are are real breathing living things but they had to do it the way that they did but game of thrones like aor really walks that balance beam of like complete realism augmented by cg when it had to and oftentimes you don't know what's what except for the maybe the dragons and i think aor um in terms of creative decisions um obviously there's hundreds if not thousands of people working on that show you have the creative decisions boiling down to certainly the producer but ultimately the director louis so he had to make Mm. all of these decisions of how we're going to make this look how they had to augment the crystal castle that a lot largely the exterior shots from far away are cg as opposed to the the model that they had for the original film um Mm -hmm. cg was just the best way for them to go but if you look at it it looks real. And even Louie had said, I think in an interview or something talking about when they had to use CG for the wide shots of the land striders and the Gelflings leaving the castle, but oh, they yeah, had to yeah, yeah. make the CG look like the way puppets would look. Mm. And to your point about the Weta sculptures, why the Weta sculptures of Jen and Kira don't work aren't because they aren't beautifully crafted, aren't because they aren't gorgeous as what they are. With the AOR figures, they had digital scans of the puppets. So yes. what we see, because I'm looking at my, my Deet right now, she looks like the puppet. Yes. Whereas Jen and Kira, they sculpt to look not like the puppets. They sculpt them to be these real things. Whereas they should have oh, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. sculpted them to look like the puppets. Yeah. And they did Yeah, because even the pose is not like a puppet. You yeah. you know that the gen pose is not like a puppet posing. Yeah. Yeah. It looks like he's alive. You know what I mean? Like he's yeah. a real person. Yeah. Yeah. It's like it's almost like an interpretation. Yeah. He looks like a Planet of the Apes character, honestly. <laughs> 
<laughs> I know we talked about that. And again, Team McDowell. <laughs> and and no no slight to Weta. I mean, those guys are great. I'm friends with Daniel Falconer, who heads up the whole um the whole line of of um. Oh mate, Crystal. look at the Gotham. Look yeah. at the Gotham oh, just released. Absolutely I want stunning. that Gartham so bad. Uh, absolutely stunning. Um, stunning. You know, I've got I've got Augra, I've got um, I've got the Emperor. Are you they are Gartham? absolutely amazing. Not yet. Um, <laughs> uh, Amy, <laughs> <laughs> I've got a remortgage. No. Um, yeah. yeah. So they 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 can do it. I just yeah I yeah it just didn't they just didn't get it right. I don't think. But going yeah, back to what you said about the um, castle, like I remember seeing that shot for the first time, and I was just breathless. Mm-hmm. It took my breath away. It was just unlike un, it was so amazing to return to Thra and see things that we'd seen before, but in a completely different light. Like we know the castle inside out. You know that's a model, but those shots that they did where you know, like you said, where the the camera starts off at the castle and it slopes down and it's coming down the track and we see the carriage going down with the land striders in pursuit and they just you know and double negative i've said this before but they just did such an incredible job such an incredible job mm-hmm. like it just you feel it feels like it's real it feels like you can touch it it does it really does it makes me both happy and sad yeah. <laughs> but um, i can't live there <laughs> You know, going back to something that you said earlier, we were talking about as we probably wrap this show up um, or this episode up with the conversation between uh, what's what's the scroll keeper's name? His Skek what? Skekok. Skekok. Okay, the conversation between Skekok and Brea when she's asking about the tomes in the Skeks's libraries, and she's curious mm. about it. I suspect that that prophecy is in their library. They know about it already. Um, you think that's so, already, they're already aware of it? Yeah, and I think what becomes yeah, dangerous in- to them, to the Skeksis, is when the Gelflings find out. And when the Gelflings find out and it, it, it iterates in Stone in the Wood, then they realize, oh, no, now it's on. And I would imagine the the creation of that prophecy is what prompts them to have the Gartham Wars. Like, okay, yeah. we're already, we already going to... Um, drain them of their essence but we have to keep gelfling they have to keep having gelfling or we're going to have no one to drain essence from so they can't kill them all so they can find this kind of midway to live with gelflings while it's draining them or whatever but then with the revelation of the prophecy to the gelflings the skexis are like oh no We've yeah so because in the original in the original movie it's the the skex uh, the skexis discover the prophecy and it's what causes them to start the destruction of the Gelfling, but wouldn't it just be an amazing? I think that would be an amazing moment where maybe the we see Skekok in the library, or in you know going through all these racks and racks of old um, bookcases, and he's just pulling out all these scrolls and maps and so, and he stumbles across it, something that he's forgotten about. Maybe he did know about it, and he's just forgotten, and he's re- reminded of this. And then suddenly, like you said, like the 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 prophecy is burned into the wall of destiny, or however it however it's written. Because that's the only thing that I'd say that, that there's a little bit of a little bit of um, disparity between the movie and the in and Age of Resistance is just I don't necessarily believe that the ruins that Jen and 
Kira come across is stone in the wood. Like, I think it's implied that that's what it's meant to be, but it feels too ancient. It does. You're right. Have we spoke about this before? I, feel like I don't we think so. Well, I think that we, we've, we've talked about maybe because for those of you listening, James and I have a group of friends who all became friends over the Dark Crystal. So we talk about the Dark Crystal all the time and other things, of course. Um, it's a very irreverent and hilarious group. Um, <laughs> however, we there have been times when we've shared images of you know the houses of the old ones or whatever. Yeah. And compared them to Stone in the Wood and looking at where Mod, the old Madra sits, Madra mm-hmm. Farah, and there's some things that don't line up, like. And you can see kind of the opening, and I think there's even a video somewhere of yeah, where well, they've yeah they've done the d- compare and contrast, and they still don't yeah. really match up. I would agree. No, because I think is because the chair that Kira sits on is 100 percent the chair that Farah sat on, mm-hmm. but it, the rest of it just doesn't. Maybe aesthetically, as in the design of the building matches up, but just I don't know, just the way it's aged the way they don't know about it, the way that only Kira knows about it. And, you know, the houses of the old ones, it's mm-hmm. kind of implies that it's really ancient. Yes. Like, yes. Not just, not just like 50 years old. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I mean, again, it goes back to the fact we don't know how long Gelfling lived for, but it still doesn't necessarily match up. Which makes me think maybe this, I'm not, I have no authority. I have nothing to do like with writing Dark Crystal or anything. But like, if there's a Sky Clan, and if um, the Sky Clan appears, and they some type of structure appears, yeah, in stone in the wood, and that's where yeah. this, like, so I could see her saying the houses of the old ones because she knows about the Sky Clan and she knows about these mystic Gelflings that appeared, some type of story. So that would make sense. Hmm. But I, I would agree. I think that. The way they walk into the original doesn't feel like modern. Doesn't feel Paris. like no. It doesn't feel like stone in the wood Palace. at all. No, it doesn't. No. Um, I mean, for- it feels it feels like it's in the same region. <laughs> it feels like it's in like if you because they're in the woods. It certainly feels like they're in the same general region of stone in the wood. That place where they are at feels different. Yeah, hundred percent. Just for those listening, Sky Clan is the name that we've given the Gelfling that appear on the prophecy. That's mm-hmm. our, our little group who came up with that, didn't we? Just yeah. for those in there, so we know. Yeah. But um, yeah, just, yeah, something doesn't add up. It doesn't, it feels like, I know even Brian Froud said, I swear Brian Froud said in an interview, there's other clans that we may yes. not have seen yet. Yes. And he kind of alluded to that. And I was like, ah, oh, give me, give me more, Brian. <laughs> give me more of your amazing creativity. But, and we know we are in the 40th anniversary year. Technically, it won't be until December 17th. So the mm-hmm. official anniversary isn't for uh, another four or five <coughs> months. Um, mm-hmm. But this is the 40th anniversary year of the original film. There's a lot to years. celebrate. Can you believe it? 40 years. I know. It's crazy. crazy, isn't it? It's a big year for like, because I do a, uh, a Blade Runner show. It's the 40th anniversary of Blade Runner. It's the 40th yep. anniversary of The NeverEnding Story. It's the 30th anniversary of Alien 3. It's the 30th anniversary of Howard's End. It's... The thing, all, the these, anniversary all of the these thing. amazing movies, yeah, all these amazing. I mean, wasn't the 80s just the best, man? It was the best. If I could, if I could, if I could go back and live my teens through a set, it'd be the 80s. It was just like an absolute explosion of creativity. Yeah. I and, feel like we're in that a version of that now from what we're seeing. Oh, yeah, Stranger Things, Age of Resistance, yeah. um, even the music, what's popular. I feel like we're in an 80s revival and we have been since like 2016. 
Yeah, I think I think yeah, I think we're they're trying to it's kind of nostalgia driven, but I think they realize that so much that was created in the eighties has still got legs. Yep. Like there's still all these products and all these all these stories have still got, you know, more to tell. Mm-hmm. Um and obviously they've just announced the uh, Great Conjunction convention yep. in November. The Great Conjunction comes. Yep. Sorry, bad, in, bad impression. <laughs> um, wow. But yeah, so. Forever. Yeah. So um, I'm looking forward to that. That'll be it's amazing. It. It's going to be. Uh, Can't wait so to come to LA. There's a, a, a Dark Crystal convention for, in celebration of the 40th anniversary. It is going to be held at the Universal Hotel, I believe. Yeah, is it Universal Hilton Hotel? Universal Universal Hilton, I believe. Yeah, I think so. I will be there. James is staying with me here in my place. Um, Cannot wait. Yeah, it's going to be a great time. We hope to see you there. Tickets are available. Um, There's an after party. You can buy tickets for that too, which reminds me I need to send you money for my upgrade. Um, Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah, But yeah, it's a really exciting year. We have a lot more to talk about. Um, I know we kind of started with the Gelflings, like a Gelfling Gelfling part two with this episode, and we veered off. That's just kind of going to be what we do. There's a lot to talk about. We haven't even covered... Podlings. We haven't even yeah. talked about the podling bums. Not just, not just the po- yeah. bottoms that appear in Age of Resistance. <laughs> <laughs> not just the podlings, but there's so much of this world that we've yet to, yet to discuss. Like, I want to talk about the Earthskeks and what they are and yeah. how they were made and how they were puppeteered and um, what that was like. You know, you can see a few behind the scenes pictures of them. I think that's going to be an interesting discussion. And just yeah. talking about the legacy of puppetry and how the Dark Crystal and Jim Henson single-handedly um, made puppetry a, a common language of cinema, a common language of TV. Um, it would not be in mm. our TV and in our lives today if not for that man. So, 100%. I mean, he, he single-handedly had the vision to make puppets cool. Like, he, yeah, he, in, one, in one hand, he created uh, the Muppets was this sort of, uh, caricature version of of of, of uh, stereotypes that we all knew and loved and laughed about, and then suddenly he went dead serious. Like he went the complete, much like you know the story he's telling with Dark Crystal, two halves of the same. He went from comedy all the way to a real serious, mm-hmm. living, breathing world. Yeah. Um. I think he's sorely missed. Oh, he is. I was like, just. I- I just like my heart aches. Like yes, I just think, me too. like this guy. This guy, he, like don't get me wrong. This guy was an innovator, right? So he, if he if he had the tools of CGI, he a hundred percent would have used that. But I think he's you know his his passion and love for puppetry. He just I'd just love to know what he'd have done next. Mm-hmm. Like I don't necessarily know if he would have gone back to dark crystal because he always moved on like you know he did every you know apart from the muppets and that was mainly because the muppets was the big money maker like for you know to even get um to even get dark crystal made he had to sign an agreement to say he'd do another muppet movie they were you know the guy who fund you know you saw funding and all this from the um from the uh, movie company were like, yeah, we will let you do your passion project, but you've got to give me another Muppet movie. Mm-hmm. And he was like, okay. So, you know, he was, he was always pushing, always yeah. pushing, always moving on. I posted on someone's 
thread or something yesterday and i i can't still can't believe he's gone it's been 32 years since he's been alive i can't mm. i feel like it just happened i i can't even he feels the most alive of anyone that i i i, I never met him i never knew him i was very young when he died very young um maybe 12 or 13 or something his legacy his energy his creativity it's so powerful that his life resonates in us today yeah and he's my seventh cousin by the way and the thing that the thing that i i always find with jim henson's productions is that it doesn't matter which one i watch i always enjoy them whether i whether i watch the muppets whether i watch uh you know dinosaurs whether i watch the uh teenage mutant ninja turtles that he helped with whether it be dark crystal labyrinth it doesn't matter if it's him solely producing that film or if he's just had an influence his influence makes that film better you know mm-hmm. and just seeing just seeing his art and the team that he brought with him at that time um yeah they just they were just they're just the best movies yeah and i doesn't, I, doesn't get better and i have to say this and i will always stand by this even though like Louie and I are really close. That man is the embodiment of Jim Henson, or he was the embodiment of Jim Henson for Age of Resistance. Without his vision, mm-hmm. without his his integrity on what it's like, what it means to tell a story with puppets, with integrity, that show would not have been as good as it was. And mm-hmm. as well as the writers and everyone that they brought together to know this is how you make a show like this. So yeah. props to Jim Henson. Um, may you live on, and he does. Um, and with that, we should probably wrap because it's been about an hour. Yeah, sure thing. And um, we we, uh, w- we look forward to speaking to you guys next time. Yes, and you know what I'd <laughs> like to do? I would like to record an episode of Legend of Thra at the con in November. Oh, that'd be cool. That'd be that so would much. Be we cool. can just like have we can just have or maybe at the, at the after show or something like that. I think. Yeah, yeah, awesome. yeah, yeah. We'll de- we'll definitely sort that out. Definitely. All right. Uh, Sounds people- like a plan. Yep, thank you so much for listening, and we'll be back soon. Cheers, thanks a lot, bye. If you'd like to get in contact with the show, you can do so at darkcrystalpodcast at gmail.com. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash darkcrystalpodcast. Follow us on Instagram at darkcrystalpodcast and on Twitter at darkcrystalpod. Thank you all so much and stay tuned for the next episode of Trial by Stone.